0: Southern California's Water Replenishment District is charged with ensuring the availability of a reliable supply of high-quality groundwater to a 420-square-mile service area in Los Angeles County. Originally founded to address seawater intrusion into the aquifers, curtail over-pumping, and refresh the region's stressed groundwater resources, the Water Replenishment District has developed an extensive network of wells to monitor groundwater elevation and water quality conditions, and implemented an effective strategy to replenish groundwater throughout the region with recycled water and stormwater recapture. For WRD, data is the name of the game, and today, with remote access to vast quantities of data via in-well telemetry, a staff of modest size is doing yeoman's work to protect precious groundwater resources in the most populated county in the United States. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager at Institu.
1: And I'm Adam Hobson, In-Situ Senior Application Development Manager for Groundwater.
0: And no surprise, today we're going to be talking about groundwater monitoring, specifically monitoring related to groundwater management. For the conversation, we're excited to have with us two representatives from the Water Replenishment District, the largest groundwater agency by population in the state of California. Brian Partington is WRD's Manager of Hydrogeology, and Moises Santion is the organization's Associate Hydrogeologist. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to you both.
2: Well, good morning. How are you doing? Great. We're doing well. (laughs) Hi, Ellen. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having us.
0: Great to have you here. So, Brian, let's start at the beginning. Please tell us a bit about WRD's history and the circumstances around its founding.
3: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, the Water Replenishment District, we are a special district that's responsible for uh, managing groundwater here in southern Los Angeles County, California. Uh, We were formed uh, by a vote of the people in 1959. We have uh, water level data going back to uh, the earlier 1900s. And what we saw was a dramatic decline in water levels due to increased development in and around the Los Angeles area. And this resulted in water supply wells going dry. Uh, We also experienced a significant amount of seawater intrusion along the coast. Uh, So groundwater is being removed from the basins faster than uh, could be replenished naturally. And that was the main reason for forming the water replenishment district. Uh, We are codified in the California Water Code. And this essentially outlines uh, what we are responsible for. And currently, we're the only water replenishment district in California.
0: Great. So, characterize for us a little bit the region you serve, the challenges you face, and really what WRD encompasses.
3: Yeah, so we're located in Southern uh, California in the Southwestern U.S. Uh, As you may know, it's a very dry climate, and it only rains a few months out of the year. It's not uncommon uh, for us to get any rain for several months, and this usually begins in late spring and usually ends up in about early fall. Um, as you can imagine, we also have experienced uh, drought conditions many times over the past 96 years, and that's the rainfall record that we have available to us. And uh, in the past couple decades, uh, we have been exceptionally dry. And according to recent research, uh, it's the worst drought that we've ever experienced in the past 1200 years. So that's, I have to say one of our biggest challenges is uh, getting through those drought conditions and ensuring that there's enough water in the basins so that we can support the local uh, pumping community and then also the court adjudicated pumping rights uh, for both of the groundwater basins that we manage. And that's roughly about 281,000 acre feet per year.
0: So who are the groundwater users in the basin and how do you work with them?
3: The pumping community as whole uh, includes various entities. Uh, This would include uh, municipalities, uh, utility companies, private entities, and mutual water companies. Um, As you mentioned earlier, we have a very large service area, it's roughly 420 square miles, and we have a population of roughly 4 million people, it's about 10% of the state's population. So as you can imagine, uh, we use a lot of water. It's roughly about 550,000 acre feet per year, Uh, but we're very fortunate uh, that we have two very productive groundwater basins in our region. Uh, We get a good portion of that water here locally, and that's within both the central basin and the west coast basin. It's also very important for us to work closely with the pumping community. Um, We seek their feedback on large projects and programs Uh, through what we call our technical advisory committee. Uh, We also seek their input on our annual budgeting process, and that's done through our budget advisory committee. Uh, Both of these are made up of pumpers that we serve. We also provide updates to uh, various water associations, and that would include the West Basin Water Association and the Central Basin Water Association. And what I find interesting is that Uh, Both of these associations are obviously made up of pumpers, uh, but they've been in existence since the 1950s. So there's a lot of uh, history there. There's a lot of folks that have been around for decades. And so it's a really great resource uh, for me as a hydrogeologist to be able to go to that pumping community and find out what's happened in the past. You know, how how are things different today uh, than they were in the past? And I really enjoy uh, that interaction with the pumping community.
1: So, Brian, what are the primary sources there of groundwater replenishment?
3: Primary sources of replenishment are two main things, um, and it's all around um, managed aquifer recharge, or MAR. Uh, it's been used in the basin for over 60 years, and there are two main areas where we recharge uh, the basin artificially. And this is done through a very close partnership with the Los Angeles County uh, Public Works Uh, The first area that we use for recharge is injection along the coast, and that's to prevent seawater intrusion. Uh, Three barriers exist along the coast to prevent seawater intrusion, uh, but also provide replenishment to both the Central Basin and the West Coast Basin. Uh, We use a combination of imported water and advanced treated recycled water at these three different facilities. Uh, One of these facilities is owned by the Water Replenishment District. And the other two are owned by the West Basin Municipal Water District and the City of Los Angeles uh, Bureau of Sanitation. Um, And what we've been doing over the years is we continue to increase our use of recycled water uh, such that all the barriers are currently permitted to receive 100 percent recycled water. So when those supplies are fully available, uh, then we will be able to very easily transition to. 100% locally sustainable uh, recycled water for those barriers. Now, the second area that we uh, recharge uh, includes the surface spreading at the Montebello Forebay. And this is an area of our basin that has predominantly coarser grain materials. And so we're able to capture uh, water in those areas like local stormwater, but then we also purchase tertiary retreated water from Los Angeles County Sanitation District Um, And then lastly, the WRD also supplies advanced treated recycled water for spreading through our Albert Robles Center or ARC. So there's a number of areas where we can put water uh, in the basin. And I think one of the more important things about recharging the basin is that uh, our purchases are based on uh, long-term averages from the groundwater basin model that we developed in partnership with the United States Geological Survey. So no matter what happens, whether it's a dry year or a wet year, we purchase roughly the same amount of water each year, and that's so that we can maintain uh, sustainable groundwater basins. And it's these consistent purchases uh, that also help us stabilize the rates that we charge our customers, the pumping community.
1: So the idea then, it, again, you, it's always the same amount that's coming coming in to the system. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, so it'll change throughout the system. But what we do is we take averages, it's a 30 year average. And what we've found is that if we purchase a certain amount of water every year, that we can get through all these peaks and valleys. And so for example, this last um, drought that we've had for the last 20 years, just prior to that, uh, we had done a lot of recharge in the basin and we got up to a very high level. And uh, over the last 20 years, we've been kind of working down off of that peak. And it seems that with each you know, three to five year, we get another uh, drop in our water levels because there's the new persistent drought conditions. And then we'll get a really good wet year and we're able to capture a lot of that water and it responds very quickly. And it's this, you know, up and down, up and down, but if we continue to keep on purchasing these average amount of water over long periods of time we know we'll be catching we will catch up at some point
1: so that's interesting so and i think really it sounds like the the really the, that reliance on that imported water has decreased over over time because of this 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 management is that true
3: most definitely yeah our our agency has uh, changed quite a bit over the years, uh, especially the types of water that we purchased to replenish the basin. Uh, originally, we were considered a paper agency uh, where we were responsible for making sure that we purchased enough water to replenish the basins and primarily those purchases were for uh, imported water uh, and then also for uh, recycled water. Uh, But over the years, uh, our agency has evolved and we've got more heavily involved in groundwater basin management by developing the regional groundwater monitoring program. Um, We also started to build large uh, water treatment projects. Uh, One of them is the Goldsworthy Desalter and Torrance. Uh, Then we also built uh, two advanced wastewater treatment facilities, Uh, the first one being our Leo J. Vanderlands facility or LVL, which is located in Long Beach and our Albert Robles Center, or ARC, uh, which is located in Pico Rivera. And what these facilities do is they help us address, uh, in the case of Goldsworthy, uh, a saline groundwater plume that was left behind mm-hmm. and when we had seawater intrusion. We put the intrusion barrier there and left behind the saline groundwater plume. So we're addressing that through Goldsworthy.
1: Oh, very good. So, so Brian, has the saltwater intrusion problem been completely resolved now with the, with the injection wells?
3: So um, the short answer is uh, yes, in a sense that we have an existing seawater intrusion barrier. And that's successfully been able to keep the saltwater out and then reduce the chloride concentrations along the coast. And this, as long as we are maintaining these protective elevations and in the injection wells, uh, we'll be able to keep the seawater out. Uh, but we still need to address uh, the trap saline plume in the West Coast Basin. Uh, we're currently in the process of expanding our Goldsworthy Desalter facility. Uh, this facility is currently treating uh, brackish water, and it serves as a water supply to the City of Torrance. Uh, that facility is currently designed to treat 5 million gallons per day, uh, and we're hoping to double that production uh, so that we can provide even more potable water Uh, here locally to the city of the city of Torrance. Uh, This is a coordinated effort uh, between both our engineering and hydrogeology departments. Uh, The engineering folks are currently designing the project, and we hope to make first water in about 2027. Uh, My staff, Moises leading the charge, are currently uh, gathering additional data and that's to help us define both the lateral and vertical extent of the saline plume hotspot Uh, where we'll eventually install additional extraction wells uh, to supply additional water to the Goldsburg to Salter. And um, I guess lastly, we anticipate that this project uh, will hopefully operate for probably the next uh, 20 to 30 years. So as you can imagine, that's a very large saline plume that was left behind, so it's going to take some time. Wow! It's about 375,000 acre-feet at 500 ppm chlorides or above. So it's going Mm -hmm. to take some
1: time. But it's
3: a local, you know, renewable water supply that we'll have uh, for the local folks in the West Coast Basin.
0: We do want to bring Moises into the conversation to talk about the actual monitoring that you're doing. But Brian, uh, before that, in 1996, WRD did launch the Regional Groundwater Monitoring Program. I'd like to just get your take on the program and, and how it's evolving.
3: Uh, It's a great program, you know, this uh, this year marks the 63rd year that the Water Replenishment District has been monitoring uh, both the Central Basin and the West Coast Basin. And for many years, uh, we relied on consultants uh, to conduct our monitoring and provide reporting, which is required under the Water Code. However, this changed uh, a few decades ago when the district hired uh, their first full time hydrogeologist Ted Johnson. And Ted was responsible for developing our regional groundwater monitoring program that we have today. And he did this in collaboration with several really outstanding scientists from uh, the USGS. Uh, In the early years, uh, data was obtained from water supply wells. And as you know, these have long screen intervals and they tap into different aquifers. So you can't get that really differentiated data uh, that we really needed to figure out what was going in each of the aquifers. So this all changed with the work that was conducted with TED and the USGS. Uh, Over the past couple decades, uh, deep nested groundwater monitoring wells were installed throughout the basin. Uh, Some of these wells go as deep as 3000 feet, so they're not exactly shallow. Uh, A good majority of them go down to where we do most of our pumping, somewhere in the 1000 to 2000 foot range. So it's been very beneficial uh, to the pumping community and for WRD to better understand the basin. Uh, Each of these uh, borings uh, contain multiple well casings. They're screened at depth discrete depths and each one is within a different aquifer. Uh, We have staff of 500 geologists that monitor water levels uh, roughly on a quarterly basis. And then we also obtain uh, water quality data on a semi-annual basis uh, for the program. And it now includes, I think over 350 individual wells And so when you consider our service area is about 420 square miles, that gives us a well cluster about every uh, two miles, which isn't too bad for a rather large groundwater basin. And again, these go down, you know, thousands of feet. So we get a lot of really good data. And also, as you know, uh, most all of our wells have pressure transducers in them, and this allows us uh, to gather additional data beyond our routine water levels. And again, those are conducted typically on a quarterly basis. And recently uh, we installed the telemetry systems on several dozen key wells, and those are to help us monitor more frequently uh, those wells that we need to tap into on a regular basis. So earlier we talked about uh, recharge in the Montebello 4 Bay. Uh, When it's raining, our directors are very um, interested in the water levels in that basin because that's where we do most of our storage. Uh, so when we can pull up a water level leading into a meeting that was accurate as of you know 15 minutes ago, um, that's a pretty powerful thing to be able to bring to you know, your directors as well as the pumping community as a whole.
0: That's great.
1: So Moses, what data are we talking about? Are we just talking water level, or are we getting into other types of data as well?
2: It's water level, water quality um, primarily, um, but also um aquifer specific data um such as hydraulic conductivity transmissivity uh based on different pump tests that we occasionally perform um, you could also have specific capacity if it's a production well um where you can track based on the drawdown and the water when it's being pumped um over time and the flow rate at which the aquifer is being pumped you can determine um the health of the specific well. So there's there's so to answer your question, yeah, it's it's water level, water quality, and aquifer specific, other aquifer specific um,
1: data points. That's fantastic. On the, I guess you know, imagine you know, water levels been kind of a a very common data point that we've been collecting for a long time in in groundwater systems. Um, Tell me a little bit more about your evolution on that, but also on that in terms of getting into, I think maybe the water quality side of data. Have you seen any changes in that over not only maybe the course of, of WRD, but actually also just your experience with that as well, kind of evolution of data collection?
2: Yeah. So the evolution of data collection, well, it started off, you know, with just, um, a field representative, whether it's a scientist or uh, an environmental technician or such, um, manually collecting the data. Usually for water level, you'd have uh, someone use a water level meter, uh, water level indicator whatever water level meter or sounder probe, mm-hmm. um, which is part of your product portfolio. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Back in the day, and we still do this, by the way, occasionally, but back in the day, all you had to do was, you know, it was all manual. And, you know, to build a robust data set over the years, you'd have to, in theory, go out there daily, right? Or, or go out there as many times as, as possible. And that just doesn't become feasible, right, over time. Um, and then on the water quality side, you know, same same idea, where you'd have to go out there and, you know, pump out the water yourself and then, have to wait on a lab to run the several analyses on it and you know and before there was any oh, in the field water quality monitoring equipments like water water quality probes say like your your Aquatrol five hundred six hundred 500 600 suite you know back in the day you'd have to wait until you got your lab results there was no way to field screen your measurements or to get an idea of of these measurements and how they can change, um, during an average pumping cycle. And, um, and with the development of technology, what it's done is it's, it's made data collection easier, but also made, made data sets more robust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can drop a transducer and, and a cable down a well, program it to, record at whatever frequency you want and uh, it'll collect. You don't have to go to the well every day. Um, you can go out there occasionally to download the data. And then with the onset of remote telemetry, you can then now have all of that data remotely delivered to your you know computer workstation without even needing to, to visit the well if you don't, you know, if you, it's, you know, and so it's made things a lot easier, a lot more robust. In the olden days, say, in a month, you wanted to get water level data, you'd have to go out there once a day, you know, and you'd be limited to, you know, generally one data point a day, 30 data points. Now, if I want, I can have that transducer recording every five minutes, right, and and get thousands of data points. And that at one location is powerful. Expanding that, to over 350 locations for a 420-square-mile region, that's how you manage basins.
0: Because so what does it enable you to do, that volume of data?
2: What it allows me to do is better focus on the analysis of the, the data and more data just adds better resolution, right, to our thinking and it allows more certainty in that data. It allows more certainty for what the f- future forecasting could look like. Because there's more data points. You know, data is the name of the game. You need your data. That's how you're able to strategize and, you know, st- provide the decision-making for mm-hmm. the district. So, you know, at the surface, they're just these wells and cool, there's these pipes in the ground. But really, they're, they're data points. And that data is valuable. You can't put a price on on data.
1: Do you have any examples of where having going with a lower frequency data set, you weren't seeing anything, but then going from going to a higher frequency data set or more distribution or something like that would have changed your interpretation of the system or an understanding of how things may be happening?
2: Yeah, there's there's several examples, but I'll use I'll use a simple one. Let's say I have a transducer. Deployed in a well that has it's equipped with a pump. It's an extraction well Mm -hmm. per se. Um, If I go out there on Tuesday at two o'clock and I measure a water level and it appears to be um, a rather high water level, you know, a higher elevation than I was expecting, then I'd say, "Wow, like um, you know, the, the well was off and and water levels have rebounded and." That's great. And then the next day I could go out and I'm seeing that the water level drops significantly because so again, at least I can say, oh, the pump is on. And I could do that daily, but with the power of more higher frequency, more data points, I can then, and then especially telemetry from my workstation, I can pinpoint the exact minute where the pump was turned on or where the pump was turned off. And then I can assess how long it takes for the recovery, and, and different parameters related to, to the performance of the well itself over time. So that's a specific uh, instance where, you know, to make your different decisions, you're able to see um, in real time or near real time uh, information that gives you, that pinpoints
1: you towards where what you're looking for. It, it can be a great tool. Again, there's a lot of things that I think we were missing in the past, uh, with just manual measurements. And you, it's, just, it's, not, it's impossible to get the frequency that you may need, especially in a pumping system like you're dealing with.
0: Uh, makes a lot of sense. You're listening to Aquapod, brought to you by InSitu. This concludes part one of our episode on the water replenishment district. Please join us for part two and subscribe to the podcast on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor and Adam Hobson with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and I-25 Productions. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. Until then, take care out there.